You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and joining me today is a familiar voice on the Diplomats Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Aman Thakur, who's joining me from London today. How are you doing today, Aman? Good, Ankit. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, it's great to, to come on for a third time. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It is your third time. Okay, yeah, I was wondering if I'd had you on once or twice before. Uh, but Amun's a former a contributor, uh, a regular contributor to The Diplomat. You might have read his writing on South Asia and India. Um, currently, he's an adjunct fellow with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And he's the author of the excellent India Log newsletter on Substack, uh, which I recommend subscribing to if you're interested in following the nitty-gritty of Indian economic and foreign policy. Uh, Amun's newsletter is really a very helpful summary of uh, some of the ongoing debates and uh, new developments in India. Um, so, Amun, what I want to really spend this podcast talking to you about is... Um, really India's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast previously with other guests, but um, ever since uh, India went into a deep lockdown uh, over, over the coronavirus in late March, um, there have been progressive steps taken by various parts of the government architecture. This all sort of culminated um, last week or, or this week in the announcement um, by the Indian government, uh, Prime Minister Modi did a, a special address to the country uh, on May 12th uh, last week about a massive stimulus package to um, take on the economic ardors of, of dealing with the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, now, there's a lot to talk about here. So specifically, uh, a lot of the headlines that were coming out of Indian media initially were sort of emphasizing the government's talking point that the spending was going to amount to around 10% of GDP, um, although I think you know you can you can read that number in a few different ways. Um, so without, without me saying a lot more on this, uh, I wanted to sort of uh, ask you to kind of summarize for us what exactly uh, the new uh, or the not-so-new uh, economic package really uh, indicates for how India is approaching coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this big package was announced first by the prime minister who gave very few details in his big address last week uh, to the country, just sort of gave the big headline number, uh, which is sort of $266 billion, 20 lakh crores in Indian rupees. And just sort of said, you know, this is going to be the outlay and it's going to be it, his words specifically were about this is going to be an economic package. It's not necessarily a stimulus, but it'll be an economic package that involves some fiscal outlay, but also a lot of reforms. And a lot of commentators immediately rushed into it, saying you know, this might be Prime Minister Modi's 1991 moment, which is the last time that India really undertook major structural reforms, trying to you know, reignite uh, the image of Modi the reformer that had kind of been lost. Uh, for the last couple of years, uh, you know, that sort of became the big headline. And then as the next couple of days went on, as the finance minister, Nirmal Sitharaman, who took over and started announcing the nitty gritty of the package, you really saw the, the sort of breakdown between marketing and reality, that the number actually of, of you know, $266 billion was actually going to include at least half of that came from spending that had already been done by India's central bank. Uh, a lot of it was actually not going to be new fiscal spending, but actually, you know, some credit uh, that's going to so forcing banks to provide credit, some loans that were going to go out. Uh, so the actual fiscal outlay as calculated by a number of groups, you know, these are banks in India, ratings agencies, economists, really actually close to around 1% of GDP. Uh, and so, you know, really close to 22, 26 billion, not the 266 billion we were talking about. And then, you know, over six days, each day sort of had a theme 
And you kind of saw where the focus of the prime minister and his government was. So the first day immediately going to micro, small and medium enterprises, which have sort of, you know, contribute to 40 percent of uh, of the Indian GDP. And then sort of looking later on to more structural reforms and, and things that they want to highlight. Now, even there, you saw a lot of confusion where things that were announced previously being rejigged, repackaged and represented to the audience as part of this current economic package, but these are things that the government's been working on for a long time. A lot of this package is just declaring intent to do some of these things that they announce mm-hmm. that they're going to pursue something that, you know, they, they want to kind of undertake, but this isn't uh, in any way, shape or form, something that's going to impact lives and livelihoods and people today. And so that's sort of where you see, you see the package is being left behind is there's a lot of somewhat disappointment in India's, you know, India's industry and, and, and Indian uh, sort of business leaders. There's a lot of disappointment from economists, even some people within the BJP's camp who are sort of, you know, in the uh, let's be more open, let's sort of go to Davos and, and embrace sort of neoliberalism, that class being really sort of disappointed with the scope of, of what the package was. Whereas, uh, and, and this is sort of the, the last question that you posted, which is about self-reliance and, uh, and that, uh, the BJP's, or sorry, the RSS's ideological sort of labor wing are really excited about this. Can you tell our listeners what the RSS is, just to, just to yeah, get everybody on the yeah, same sure. page? So the RSS is the ideological parent of the BJP, the sort of, uh, you know, uh, nationalist, Hindu nationalist organization that was created in the 1920s and is sort of the, you know, ideological parent, has a lot of different branches to it, including the BJP, which is a political wing, but also, you know, they have some labor organizations, they have sort of religious, uh, religious sort of proselytizing organizations. And the labor organization really, really excited about this call for self-reliance because they, in their mind, read this to be greater focus on Indian products, Indian sort of self, uh, self-reliance self in a way that sort of prioritizes the Indian economy and Indian workers and not really trading with the rest of the world, not really caring about opening up borders and, and integrating with the mm-hmm. world economy, but really sort of staying localized. Right. Uh, and that's sort of, again, the last final piece of disappointment that comes in for the other half of the BJP that tends to be much more open and integrationist with uh, with the world economy. Yeah, so that was that was a really helpful summary. I want to sort of dig into several aspects of, of, of what you just said. So the first part is, I think, talking about why the prime minister would make a national address announcing something like this, right? So I think, I think so I agree with what you said, that this is largely kind of s- smoke and mirrors with a little bit thrown in there to actually take action on the economic hardships uh, facing the Indian economy as a result of the coronavirus uh, lockdown. Um, There is a need for the government to be seen as if it is doing something to respond uh, to the coronavirus. I mean, every every country, every emerging economy is is struggling with the virus in its own ways. India is not unique in that regard. Um, There have been some other things that the Indian government's also been doing, like um, obviously uh, staging a massive overseas evacuation efforts for Indians Indians overseas, which has really been visible and covered widely in the Indian press as an example of the Modi government sort of taking things into its own hands and making sure that Indians overseas are protected. But when it came to kind of the domestic coverage, uh, I think the Indian government had faced a lot of criticism internally and externally for uh, the way in which it had first uh, implemented its uh, coronavirus lockdown, which was one of the, uh, at the time when it, it was announced, it was the widest ranging in the world, uh, immediately began to apply to more than a billion people all over India and had sort of a, a kind of uneven application with uh, ambiguities about how people were supposed to go about their daily lives and, and seek things like essentials. So we come now to May, and you see this major package being announced, and it's it's frankly not surprising to me that 
uh, you know, you have all of these uh, former steps taken sort of being wrapped into this uh, headline figure, 266 billion, which was, again, widely reported. So is that is that the is that the right way to sort of think about this, that this was really born of political expediency rather than um, some kind of technocratic process that would actually support the hypothesis that this would be Modi kind of undertaking something like a 1991 moment. Um, what's your take? So I, I think there are two responses uh, here. One is that if you look at the package itself, it does lend some evidence to this theory that this was driven by political compulsions, right? So you look at who are the main beneficiaries, the way in which the package was announced and the sort of the targeted audience, again, looking at uh, the first day being on MSMEs and the second day being on farmers, poor migrants, and then sort of, it's really sort of lays down, again, where the BJP and the prime minister and, and sort of his cabinet see the political priorities, uh, the sort of key uh, voting sort of coalitions that they have, where they need to focus on this, you know, the, the, the entrepreneurs, the MSME sector, people who work in that, people who own those businesses, people that are sort of as, as we sort of tend to call the backbone of the economy, then India's most vulnerable, farmers, migrant workers, uh, that's sort of where the political action is sort of, you know, where they focus on elections. And so you can sort of see that there is that prioritization of who's getting the attention on the first day, the second day, and then as you go on, there's support for industry, there's new reforms happening. And so that I think in, in a way speaks to where the political compulsions are. But the second uh, aspect that again tells me that your hypothesis is, is right is the fact that there was a lot of time that they had to discuss what this economic package was going to look like. So the first package came out, you know, within the first couple of weeks of the lockdown in in, in March end, early April, and that was around 0.8 percent of GDP. And that again focused really on on farmers, on on making sure women who had these bank accounts that were created by the government they would get sort of fiscal they would get sort of direct payments direct cash transfers. Um, but then there was nothing for a long time. And there was a lot of, um, you know, focus on where is the government's follow on package? You know, this is there's been weeks and weeks of people uh, going without paychecks without any economic activity, we're seeing the, the, the forecasts really get worse and worse for the Indian economy. And there was just weeks where I, I remember I, I wrote two weeks back to back for my newsletter being like, where is India's fiscal package, and next week, where still is this package? Because you had government spokespersons going out and saying, it's coming soon, we are listening to cues from the industry, we are keeping our attention on the ball, and this is something that we're very close to doing, it will be announced soon, and it just did not come. And so when you look at that, that you had what seemed like on the surface of the government ministers and spokespersons saying that there was a very strong deliberation, that they were taking cues from what's happening in the economy, that they were consulting the relevant stakeholders, and they were in this sort of iterative process for a very long time. And then when you see what the package ultimately was, which is repackaged reforms that are coming back out, some bold steps being taken for sure. Yes. And I, I will concede that that, you know, some of the steps that they've taken are very bold on on the agriculture sector or some, you know, on the on on the power sector. They are sort of very bold intentions being announced. But when you think about the time that they had to think through what this package would be, the kinds of stories that came out about India's most vulnerable, struggling people walking 500, 600 kilometers in the heat, trying to get back to their home without any support from the government, without any ways of trains or buses running, and these migrant workers, it really sort of horrific sort of images and, and, and pain in their eyes that you can see, and the government paying attention to that, and then you see that the package really is underwhelming, that it really doesn't give much more than the bare minimum to these groups that there isn't that much in the package in terms of broad strokes that can, that can provide 
immediate relief and support, you are disappointed. And, and so that does lend credence that this isn't, you know, as you said, a technocratic, well thought out, you know, package that they sort of very deeply thought about what would make an immediate impact and how they can really bring the economy back on track. It was something else. And it was that political compulsion that was playing in the background uh, that really was driving how the package looked like and, and, and what, what it was going to be. Right, right. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit now about the self-reliance uh, component of this discussion. Um, so I found this quite interesting. I mean, self-reliance is certainly not a new idea in India. I mean, you can go all the way back to pre-independence and the Swadeshi movement uh, to uh, to talk about the salience of self-reliance in Indian politics. Um, in in the context of what the Modi government announced, uh, there's obviously a bit of mixed messaging, right? So like you said, uh, the RSS's labor union uh, hears self-reliance, uh, Atma Nirbhar Bharat, and they get really excited because uh, they think that this is the Modi government finally you know, leaving the sort of neoliberal wing of the BJP out and recognizing that the coronavirus crisis is a time to kind of focus on Indian workers and, and the Indian economy. But then you have the finance minister publicly saying that, you know, self-reliance does not imply isolationism or becoming exclusionist. Now, that's a little confusing because um, obviously, you know, there is a narrative that's very easy to kind of build around this notion of the Indian prime minister seizing on the coronavirus pandemic's economic implications to pursue a policy of self-reliance. If we look back at 2019 and India deciding to sit out RCEP negotiations, for example, um, there's a, a, there's no shortage of, of evidence to point to that India's fundamental economic disposition, even under the so-called uh, reformist uh, BJP government right now, is still fundamentally inward-looking and insular. Um, so what, what exactly are they talking about with self-reliance? And is this, again, a political slogan designed to sort of appeal to specific constituencies that are important to the BJP? Um, or is this a more serious declaration of, of intent towards how India is going to steer its economy for the next uh, two or three years, right? I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the timing of this crisis is that it's hitting fairly early um, after a general election in India, um, you know, roughly uh, six months, uh, seven months after uh, the general election, um, COVID-19 first uh, reared its head in, in China. Um, and now uh, the Indian government still has uh, four years to go before the next general election. And that, I think, opens some interesting opportunities about how they might decide to uh, handle potentially the long-term um, economic policy questions that arises as a, um, as a result of COVID. Uh, what's your take on the self-reliance issue? So in self-reliance, I mean, the, the, the short answer is we'll have to see where they go, but we can actually look at some of the history uh, of how the Modi government in particular has engaged with this sort of balance between protectionism and engagement with the world, right? So you have general theories right now about who is the intended recipient of the messaging and who is going to be and how they're going to make the action. And there's some theory that, oh, you know, the Atmanirvarbara, the, the self-reliance message is for you know, the RSS, the sort of more insular looking wing of the BJP, but the actions might actually be much more reformist, will actually integrate India with the world. And that's why you have this, you know, mixed messaging is that you have some people talking to one wing and trying to placate them, but the action might actually be towards uh, reform. I don't believe that that's the case. I think it's the reverse. And I think the rhetoric might be towards people that want to see India, you know, become more integrated with the world and think that's the right way for it to you know, create large, sustainable, you know, well-paying uh, jobs for its middle class. I actually think that the rhetoric is for for people like that. And I think the action is actually going to be following in a trend that we've seen since around 2017, 2018. 
And, you know, I point to a number of examples where the rhetoric and, and you know, the, the, the Modi government has had, you know, no sort of compunction in sort of saying one thing in front of one audience and doing something completely different, not very long after. I think I pointed to specifically, you know, uh, Prime Minister Modi's big speech at Davos, where he, you know, he sort of came out, said all the right things for what a Davos audience member would want to hear. Protectionism is bad. We should be looking at the world. That's a force for, you know, uh, that, that we should fight against and India will be in that fight. We will make sure that we are looking towards the world and not away from the world. And then less than a month later, the budget that his government presents in February is one uh, that increases custom duties, enforces local content rules, really sort of, again, protects domestic industries. And you could, again, point to, you know, oh, this is more about China than about the rest of the world, but this affects everyone. And it does point to uh, a tendency of the Indian government to protect its industry uh, going into sort of an election and going into uh, a political arena where economic growth isn't really as fast as it could have been. And that's really what was happening around 2017, 2018. You're continuing to see that where custom duties have continued to gone up in successive budgets. You're seeing the withdrawal from RCEP, as you, as you rightly pointed out. So when I look at the actions undertaken by the government versus the rhetoric that they're trying to pull out, it's really hard for me to just ignore that actions, right? If, if uh, history is going to be a guide in, in terms of what they do, um, I, you know, once burned, twice shy, I'm not going to believe the rhetoric uh, about we're going to engage with the world, we're going to be part of global value supply chains. I'm actually going to believe more of what you've done uh, after you said those right things, you've actually done the opposite. And so my expectation is that that's going to be the trend that moves on. Mm-hmm. Could this be the one time that they decide that they're going to put their money where their mouth is? Sure. And, I, and no one would be happier uh, than someone like me who really cares and, and you know, really wants to see high paying, sustainable jobs uh, in India and, and the emergence of you know, a, a well-off middle class. Uh, but really, it's, it's really, really hard to put away that, that, that action from the past uh, and separate that from the rhetoric. Yeah. So uh, a final question that I have to sort of round out this discussion is zooming out a little bit um, and talking about something that was popular in the Indian commentary space uh, in the earlier days of of the crisis uh, back in March, which was this notion that um, the Indian government would look to capitalize on the pandemic to finally undertake a major top-down effort to appeal to investors and manufacturers uh, that might be looking to uh, diversify their supply chains away from China to bring them to India, to really make an India finally, right? So this is, again, part of um, what I think this self-reliance language might have in it, which is um, you have um, older initiatives from the Modi era, like Make in India, that have, again, focused on shoring up Indian manufacturing with a role for overseas manufacturers. So how much of this has actually happened in the last couple months? Because I've been, I've been following this, and I honestly haven't seen a lot apart from the very kind of optimistic uh, articles in, you know, Economic Times, Mint, Bloomberg, talking about how India is going to become the next powerhouse after after the pandemic. But have we actually seen the Indian government, uh, you know, actually make something of this opportunity or is this even an opportunity? Uh, I would say no to both. That's my initial sort of answer. And the first sort of no towards if they're doing anything to attract uh, in, you know, these businesses. And I think the answer goes much further than I, I think fundamentally right now, the way the Indian economy is, they can't. Uh, and I have a couple of reasons for that. And one is that if you really want so, so for some context first, you know, this sort of argument about attracting and pulling away uh, manufacturing from China came from initially the US-China trade war. And the idea, I think Nomura had a, had a report out that said that there were companies that were looking to diversify 
and go outside of uh, of China so that they can make sure that they have you know a, a diversification of supply chain. They're not they're not that worried about when this trade war goes into you know the president sort of really focuses on it that we have other options. And then coronavirus again has made that uh, another sort of focus. And the most common I think articulation is the strategy that they're doing. I think a lot of economists have called it the plus one strategy. So they they maintain uh, a base in China, but they'd also have another option and. India really hasn't yet figured into any of those options. So it's really the, the attention is going towards Vietnam, to a, lower, to a lesser extent, Thailand. And even within South Asia, uh, it's Bangladesh that's actually getting more of the attention on textiles and on toys and uh, and a lot of these other low scopes manufacturing. India really isn't figuring on this. And there's a couple of reasons. I mean, India, even despite its, its rise in the ease of doing business index, uh, it remains a very hard place to to do business. And, and, you know, the ease of doing business index, you could talk a lot about, and a lot of economists have talked about how, you know, basically the Modi government just told its bureaucrats that, hey, this is the index, find a way to uh, rank higher on these factors, we'll show it to the World Bank, we'll go up on the rankings. And that's really what's happening. There isn't any fundamental change for businesses. They're still facing a lot of the same struggles, but the ranking has gone up because they're doing, you know, oh, the, the World Bank, index calls for us to make this particular aspect a little bit easier. Okay, we're going to work and make sure that we focus on on this aspect, but not really thinking in a much broader sense about the economy. And that's where I, I really sort of say that India isn't going to be a factor right now because there's some longstanding structural issues uh, with India, you know, levels of education, the investment in sort of land and labor, uh, the ability to get, you know, uh, environmental clearances done and, and sort of central central government and state government clearances and and sort of licenses that still are required done within a short amount of time regulatory stability and the fact that regulations tend to be announced in uh in in sort of very short order there's no 30-day notice and comment period Uh, a lot of these are reversible uh regulations that come out so you know we can talk about some of the labor uh regulations that uh uttar pradesh and gujarat and madhya pradesh have come out they've come out as ordinances these aren't laws that are passed by the state legislatures and so there's nothing stopping a future government for coming along and saying, you know, those ordinances that the government last, you know, three years ago came out with, we're going to revoke those orders. If you're a factory or if you're a business owner trying to set up a factory in Uttar Pradesh, you're not operating on a three-year, four-year schedule. You're trying to think about decades. And so that level of regulatory instability was actually going to prevent you from setting up uh, a business in, in those states. And so there are some structural issues here that uh, India just fundamentally has a long way to go before it can actually say, oh, we're going to pull away businesses from China. And then if I can zoom out one one further level, this is something that, again, what we could have done, you know, in an ideal sort of world in India would have been that the government's, you know, sort of sloganeering of make in India and, and sort of the, uh, you know, minor changes that they've been making uh, could have been called out if there was, in my opinion, a stronger opposition that was well tasked towards saying, look, you know, you're setting really high goals. We're with you on those goals, but your policy actions aren't doing enough. And so you've had sort of, you know, Prime Minister Modi and his government operate in a, in a very sort of broad vacuum where they can claim that, yes, we're making in India. Yes, make in India has taken off. We're going to attract over a thousand companies. Uh, as the news report, I think, came out that, you know, we're talking to a thousand companies and there's a dual combo with the Commerce Minister and the External Affairs Minister reaching out to business leaders and talking about what do they need to come and invest in India. Um, and you don't really have a, a well enough opposition to, to check that and make sure that that is actually happening and put that pressure on the government to, you know, okay, you're saying that you're doing this, are you actually doing this? And so you have this environment in which 
the current government is getting away with sloganeering without the actual policy to go behind it. And so they're saying that we can pull away Chinese businesses in a matter of six months. That, you know, oh, this, this, this opportunity has come along. COVID-19 is an opportunity. And in six months, we're going to make such a big push that these businesses are going to think of India as an option. It's really not that easy. The investments for something like this need to have been made since 2014 or since even before then. And, and both, both, both political parties in India are guilty of not addressing these broader structural issues when it comes to land, labor, education, uh, regulatory stability. Uh, a lot of those issues have been neglected by both political parties, both major political parties. Uh, and and that's, that's why you can't take advantage of opportunities like this. It's not something that can happen in six months. This is a game that we should have been playing six years ago. And the fact that we haven't means that we're missing yet another opportunity uh, that we could have had if we had made these investments earlier. Well, Aman, certainly thank you for that dose of reality, which I think this entire uh, conversation has been has been quite full of. Um, certainly, we'll uh, hope to have you back on the podcast to talk about um, not only developments related to the Indian economy, uh, but obviously there's a lot more to talk about, um, including uh, ongoing tensions at the uh, India-China border, which is something that I'm following closely and have plans to write about actually in the next few days. Um, but in the meantime, I really want to thank you for um, taking the time out of your day to uh, join me on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. No, thank you so much, Ankit. It's it's a great great platform to be on, and I really appreciate you extending the invite. And uh, you know, I, I I look forward to being back soon. Thanks a lot, and uh, yeah, we'll hope to we'll hope to do that soon. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.